What's up, guys? Before we get going today, wanted to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who are Skybox Sports Picks? I'm glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventor of the Skybox Matrix Interval and Advanced Modeling Mechanism that has been tested and refined through years of experience and trial and error that has propelled Skybox to the top of the industry. These guys are the best handicappers in the business. The Masters is this week. I know you want to get in on that action. By the time you're probably listening to this podcast, the uh, the someone has teed off. Someone in the early wave has teed off, but they've got head-to-head matchups. Um, they've got all kinds of props. You can do any sort of the live wagering you want. They've got you covered there. Last year, they hit Cam Smith as the top Aussie at plus 350. Paul Casey, first-round leader, plus 400. Rom as the second-round leader at plus 4,500. How about that? And then their top 20 bets were plus 3.2 units, and they were 5-2 and two in head-to-head matchups. That sounds like one hell of a profit. That's uh, something you should not miss out on. They've got a package for you. If you want to try it one of these days of the Masters, just do the daily pass. It's 10 bucks With my promo code, you get 20% off. By my math, that's 8 bucks. Uh, if I'm wrong, don't correct me. But that's worth the try. It's basically the juice on any bet. But I would recommend going through the weekend. I would actually recommend just doing the full year sign up. You can buy for a season. You could try a week-long trial. You can do a master's package special. You can do all kinds of stuff. they got a package to fit your, your skill set, I should say, or your kind of financial price range. Go check these guys out, skyboxsportspicks.com. I would not steer you the wrong way. And uh, profit while you watch the Masters this weekend. What a, uh, what a better dad move than to make a little extra greenery while your Sunday nap ensues at the Masters. Skybo- excuse me, the podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg, if you're a subscriber to the Rippy Rights newsletter, Greg has added a free pack of ribeye sausage back to the $10 prime strip. So for 10 bucks at LB's this weekend, if you subscribe to my newsletter, you can go ahead, hand Greg a 10 spot. Maybe give the guy a tip. Who's the nose? I'm just kidding. I don't think Greg takes tips. And for 10 bucks, you can get a 16-ounce prime strip and a free pack of ribeye sausage. I don't know what better package you could ask for to go to Swayze this weekend than that. I mean, maybe the steak's a little heavy, but you could cook that at home later and then just uh, go be the most popular guy in left field with the sausage. Greg's got you hooked up. I think we're going to do a grill corner on Friday's podcast. I'm still uh, working out the details with that. But go check him out, LB's University Avenue. You guys know the drill at this point. Greg is absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. Go check them out. We've got a packed show today. As I teased on yesterday's podcast, this is a bonus podcast for the people. My old radio colleague, Michael Borky, joins. We talk all things the state of Mississippi sports the last year, really kind of from the pandemic on, the state of each major program, all three major programs at each school. Um, We got into some radio stuff, what the dynamic was like with four people on the show. I even stroked Richard Cross's ego a bit. We got into all kinds of stuff. Always love talking with Borky. Even when I worked at Super Talk, we would always have these like like idea sessions or like what's wrong with the industry or making fun of Skip Bayless, something like that. Always enjoy talking media, sports with Borky. I think it was a great time. It was one of those deals like I always do. I told him I kept him 45 minutes. We talked for like an hour and a half. I think you're going to enjoy it. So uh, buckle up. Let's go. Rippy writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. All right, we now welcome on my old uh, radio cohort, Super Talk producer. That doesn't even really do your title justice. You really just make the whole show go. Michael Borky, first time we chatted in a while. What's up, man? 
It's been a really long time, way too long, if we're being honest. I know. I'm like a Texas resident now. You've got your man cave set up. You told me your kid's almost 30 pounds. It's pretty much <laughs> been a whole different world since, uh, since the last time we chatted. Yeah, um, so what's Texas been like, you Neanderthal? I know. it's you, We're both Neanderthals. It's like I can't escape the Neanderthals, right? Like I saw the Greg Abbott press conference while I was at work. And then Reeves does the same thing three hours later and Biden calls him Neanderthals. I was like, shit, what does that make me? Um, <laughs> it's been good, dude. There's a, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff to do. I live in between the two cities. So I'm actually in Arlington. I live about a mile from all the stadiums and all that. My girlfriend works in the Fort Worth school district. She's in Fort Worth. And then Dallas is about 20 minutes the other way. So a lot of stuff to do. I have not gone to one of those 40,000 uh, seat baseball games yet. I did go see... Ole Miss and State back in February, but uh, we've been good, dude. Just uh, living it up. Uh, what was the park like? I mean, from the outside, it looks like a cattle barn, but it's uh, it's like every other new. You know, I walked in and like we were with a group of college guys. I'm sure you knew some, like Michael Portner and a couple of those dudes. And uh, of course, everyone was like, "Man, this place is immaculate." And it's like, yeah, like those shit they spent <laughs> however many million. It better be. On it. All these places are immaculate now. It was really cool, though. I mean, it's I hate to do all the cliches, but you know, anywhere in the first two decks is, is all great seating. Like, they, they thought that out very well. I was very impressed. And to be honest, people were starting to talk about the world going back to normal. When I walked in that stadium and whoever was playing in front of Ole Miss on that Saturday, um, it, with that crowd coming in and the other one coming out or vice versa, it felt about as normal as possible. There were tons of people in that place, man. It looked like you could hear it on TV, too. Uh, and uh, you could also hear – I mean, with all due respect, I know people have uh, – talked about this ad nauseum it, it feels like it's been forever ago but I called two games in my life and they were both on radio and they were both for 1A Mississippi High School so I mean like mom and dad listened maybe probably had an audience of less than 100 it's really hard calling games is not easy like it, it takes a special talent but what is easy is getting names correct you know what I mean? That was the most frustrating part about when you spend $30 to watch these games. Like, the graphic packages weren't perfect and stuff like that. But when you have a guy in the batter's box, and it's not that you're mispronouncing his name, even though that's inexcusable, because there's a guy down the hall that works for the schools that would tell you. if it, They probably have the pronunciation chart, like, on their website anyway, but you could go ask. It's when the jersey number – you're saying a different name. It's, I mean, come on, man. And then little things like guy would throw like a 94-mile-an-hour pitch. Oh, with the off-speed stuff there. Like just little nuances that, that they got wrong. The whole thing was just a disaster for $30. I heard those guys were notoriously bad. So I was in the park for the first two days for the games. And then the third day, because it got moved, I uh, it, it sucked. I took a Friday off of work because that's how you do things with the whole corporate sellout thing now. And then, <laughs> and then the games get moved, so I couldn't go to all three. And I had Kellum on the the Monday game instead of the TV guys because at that point I was well versed in hearing about how bad they were. You're more, way more in depth with 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 broadcast and have way more experience than I did. I just stood in front of a microphone that Richard put up to my face for a year and a half. Like, that's rule number one, right? Like, in print, when I would do the high school games, like, it was like, get the score right, make sure you have the dude's name spelled right, and make sure you don't have any just glaring other typos. Like, the whole name pronunciation, get the right guy, I get occasionally, like, okay, 
you say that you look at the wrong jersey number like you're trying to do a quick double take or whatever and you say the wrong guy but isn't that kind of broadcast 101 get the guys yeah correct especially like Chatney. i don't even think i say his name correctly so i get that i called him chatignier until we met with him in the media for the first time and he was like not even close man Oh, they've had a, a rough couple of days, too, with the Elko injury yesterday, huh? Yeah, they really have. And and we, Colin and I recorded, like, a little emergency segment, like, before this, like, just kind of having to kind of, you know, talking through the obvious. That just – that sucks for that kid. And we'll get into that. We'll get into some state. But first, uh, enough with Texas. How is things on the uh, radio front? What's the old Super Talk game like these days? How's it going? Oh, it's going well, I think. I mean – there was a lot of time where, I mean, I didn't think we were going to get any sports, and I thought I was going to have to, like, turn into Gallo and start talking politics. And what, what's nuts about the whole thing is, so COVID happened and took sports away for six months, and in the process, the state flag thing came up, and you've got Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin and Kermit Davis and Ben Howland and John Cohen and Keith Carter and all these people at the the Capitol building in Jackson. And, and so for a while, like it, it, we, we've had to get political and then the NBA bubble happens. And then, so I was almost forced into that role anyway. I mean, I kept thinking, you know, sports are going to go away and I'm gonna have to start doing political commentary, which would make me want to jump off of the nearest building. But we almost had to become that anyway with the flag and the NCAA threatening to take stuff away and, I mean, if depending on who you talk to, the league office in the SEC was at least having some kind of like, you know, what happens if they don't change it conversation? What's the next step? And then the, the capital thing happens and then the protests. Ha- I mean, I, I ended up turning into Gallo in the last year. Yeah, that's the weirdest part about the whole deal. And it like, kind of coincided with like me leaving the show as well, too. It was weird. It's like it felt like we got to the worst part, right? Remember, I'll never forget that day when everything like, ended up shutting down. And like I think me, you, Richard, and Haydad had a content meeting. And we're like, okay, what in the hell are we about to do for however yeah. long this lasts? Because you think about it, now it's been a year and we're just so numb to all of it. But back then, like, we didn't know anything. We were calling it premature that they canceled Omaha last year. Remember, we felt like that was a knee-jerk reaction. You just didn't know how that all was going to last. And, like, I guess I was a little early. Like, right, I was far from the only person that got laid off in this country because of COVID. But I might have been on the last end of it by June, right? Like, it felt like we got through the dog days and the worst of it and sports were coming back. And then, like, obviously that happens, whatever. It sucked. But to your point, we get to, like, late July and August, we think we're getting football back. I remember one of my last days on the show, Richard was like, we're getting football back, boys. And I don't remember what the news story was that day. But then, like, early August hits, and there was that one weekend where it's like, actually, we're not getting football back. And you feel like you're having to kind of go back to the whole well again, which would have made your life a living hell trying to plan a show every day in the fall. Like, I, obviously, it worked out well. But, yeah, there was, like, a couple of days there, I'm sure, where you were like, how is this even going to work? I, I thought it was over. I, I had multiple conversations with my wife about what do I need to do next? Like, do I, like getting a, a <laughs> resume together that wasn't media. It, it, it's, it's crazy. We were, we were really were that close. I mean, it was that one weekend. I mean, hell, I, I still don't know if Dan Walken and Pat Forty's half chub has fully gone down from that weekend where it finally did seem like they may end up being right. 
and none of this was actually going to happen. Thank God for the SEC and the Big 12 kind of standing firm. But, you know, that was a, a buddy of mine was getting married that weekend, and that was actually the weekend I was supposed to move out here. I think I moved out here that Monday. And I was like, man, this is going to suck. And thankfully it worked out. We got through it. And that's probably a good transition. The next thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, the last – obviously the last year we all four were on the show – Covering college football kind of sucked. Like, that Matt Luke team was miserable. Mike yeah. – not Mike Lee, excuse me, Joe Moorhead. Like, you thought they were going to be good. He was an interesting storyline. Can this guy right the ship after the most disappointing eight and four of all time? That was a drag. I guess it was an, an interesting drag. That Egg Bowl is still one of the weirder games I've ever covered. But how was doing a show every day during this COVID season? Because I feel like there was interest – but once the cancellations and all that other stuff started to happen, I feel like, like from a first time from a fan perspective for me, I wouldn't say I'm not interested. I watched every game, but it faded in and out. There were some weeks where I like, I don't even want to check the news anymore. How, from y'all's vantage point, how is it doing a show every day during that? It, it felt like it was the same thing every week. And, and what's crazy, like the way you described it makes perfect sense because it was football. Like SEC teams played other SEC teams every week. And especially around here, well, on the Ole Miss side, Mississippi State couldn't score on Madison Central High School there for a while. But um, there was at least some compelling stuff happening, but it still felt like every conversation was, or, or every game, every preview was, well, if they pass protocol, or this guy's going to be out. And then you would talk about this big game, you know, this huge game this weekend, and then there'd be – 5,000 people there and, and so it never felt like it never felt real even though it actually was there was always a caveat and when you're talking about football caveats it's just the worst and like you said the Moorhead thing ended in a really funky way that was at least kind of interesting even though nobody was ever allowed to tell the truth about what happened at practice when their quarterback got punched in the face by their linebacker uh, we were never allowed to be honest about that and so that ends in – it was just – it didn't feel real at all. There was always a caveat. And we went from bad football and boring football to not real. And if it wasn't for Lane Kiffin and Jeff Lebby having one of the more explosive offenses in the history of the sport, I, I, don't, I wouldn't have had fun this past season even. Yeah, and then even on the other side of it, because it's like you had that one week of fool's gold with State where they go down and beat an LSU team, and I think the two takeaways were, okay, LSU might struggle this year, but that's a hell of a win for State. And then to see the way they played for, what, probably the next five-ish weeks was, was about as brutal as it comes. But still, I imagine that's interesting to cover, and it's an interesting storyline because, you know, Leach, how does this air raid offense working? What's not going right? Particularly once they put the freshmen in there. Like, at least they kind of became fascinating towards the end of the year and I'm not one to complain because we got sports at all but from a Mississippian standpoint viewing all this we did kind of get robbed for what it could have been in a normal world a really intriguing year with those two at those first two first two years at the helm respectively like a normal year that would have been fascinating it would have been and I mean I guess it was too uh, on the Mississippi State side for the wrong reasons I mean their fans won't like this but granted the quarterback they ended up going with was a true freshman. Their best offensive player was a true freshman in Wally. Their two running backs were true freshmen. And their offensive line was one of the worst I've ever seen. I mean, they were repeatedly giving up pressures when defenses would only bring three guys. Um, 
but I think it should lead to the questions of does it work? All of that stuff aside, I, I don't think it's we have enough information to judge Mike Leach, but we had Barrett Salee on the show a few weeks ago, and State fans got so mad when he said, I'm not sold on Mike Leach, and I think last year confirmed that. They were like, well, well, it's only one year. It's only one year, all this stuff. But defenses in the SEC only did what Washington did every year for almost a decade. Yeah, That's all they did. And if I were a Mississippi State fan going into this season, I would not be – what some people are doing. Oh, here's eight wins. Here's nine wins. Yeah, they'll lose to Alabama. It'll be close with Texas A&M. Oh, they'll beat LSU. They'll beat Kentucky. They'll... I wouldn't be doing that. Because this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it too. Until they prove it, I'm not going to say that they're going to do it. Until Ole Miss proves that they're better defensively, I'm not going to just say, yeah, oh yeah, they'll be better. They got to prove it first oh, yeah, Mississippi State, their offense, Mike Leach is going to adapt. They're going to run the football more, and Rodgers is going to get better. I think he will, but I'm not going to say, yeah, here's eight wins on Mississippi State's schedule when they couldn't score in Kentucky or Vanderbilt last year. Yeah, you're exactly right, and I've never thought about it from the standpoint to where they're really two, two sides of the same coin to where it's a prove-it year for the Ole Miss defense, where it's like I actually don't think this team could win eight games until I see them stop somebody, and State's the same way. I think State – you know, people like to make – I saw Ole Miss people, they love to make fun of the, you know, how much State made of going to Georgia and playing with however many players they did and putting up that effort. But I did think there was some there was some real value in that, and I didn't think it had anything to do with the defense, right, because their defense was pretty good all year. They, they moved the ball decently well, and there was a time – I mean, hell, that Kentucky game, I remember that was going on the same time as Ole Miss Alabama, and I was at this bar, and, like, after, like, 10 minutes of switching TVs, I was like – this is pointless. State's not going to score. And, like, I think they had a safety or something. But to see the nuggets of that kind of come together at the end of the year, it was very Mike Leach fashion to where it was like, never really heard of any of these guys, but they're moving it okay. This is kind of working, but I'm not sure how. So you kind of started to see, I guess, a couple of the seeds planted. And I thought you brought up a good point earlier from the state perspective is no one really – maybe not – I say no one talked about it. I was a little bit more disconnected. But, like, when you talked about Mississippi State, you talked about Mike Leach and the offense and whether it worked. You didn't talk about how terrible the offensive line was, and it takes a special type of lineman to play that way in that league. And I think that's a good point you brought up is, like, he does – like, that's probably more important than anything. You talk about who's going to catch passes. I would say it's more important who's going to block because the way that offense is designed, if you have two hands, you could probably catch the passes in any sort of agility. But he needs guys that can block and run his system. So I agree with you on the state side of that where it's like, okay, prove it, but at least you could see the seeds at the end of the year. I know there's no moral victories, and if you mentioned that to anyone, particularly a certain blogger, about the Egg Bowl, he'd probably have a stroke. But I came out of that was like, okay, State might actually be okay. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, it's two sides of the same coin, right? On one hand, they did look better at the end. They did play well in Athens. They, uh, I mean, fumbled going in to score against Ole Miss, which would have been different. Ole Miss also dropped a touchdown pass, didn't execute on another fourth down that probably would have sealed the game. But um, the Missouri team that they scored a bunch of points against was playing their backup quarterback at safety. The, uh, the Tulsa team they played in the bowl game was without their NFL possible first-round pick linebacker, and they couldn't really score there either. It, it's so hard to figure out what these teams are going to be. I know that Ole Miss is going to be good offensively. That's just something that you know. I know 
that Mississippi State still, even with the losses, is going to be pretty salty on defense. But I know nothing about Will Rogers' progression, if uh, Wally's going to be as good this year as he was last year. I mean, there's just so many questions. And, like, we even did that exercise today is, oh, look at the schedule. How many wins are there? And, and as, as we're going through it, the, the state side of things, people are getting to eight and nine wins. And I, just, I, I don't know where, where that's coming from especially when you look at their schedule to start the season. So they open with Louisiana Tech, and that should be a game that they win. Then they host NC State, who might return like 18 starters. And then they go to Memphis. And we will be three weeks in without an SEC game, and we'll know everything we need to know about Mississippi State. I didn't know that was their schedule. That's a really good point. And we don't miss people. I tell you, going to Memphis sucks. Even if you win, you're just like, all right, on to the next one. Because uh, that 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 that's really just a no-win situation. That's really fascinating because yeah, you are kind of kind of know. I mean, heaven forbid. I'd argue if you lose one of those games, okay, one they'd probably be okay depending on who it was. But if you if you don't win all three of those games, the whole eight-win threshold is probably not happening, and you're probably kind of fighting to get to bowl eligibility. I'm fascinated with them from the standpoint of like, I don't think Mike Leach will be a total tank job in the SEC. I never really bought into that. What is his ceiling though? Because you have to be really elite at something and you have to be really, really innovative to win at an elite level in the SEC West, particularly at one of the quote-unquote, you know, have-not programs. What is the ceiling there? Like, you know, Dan Mullen kind of cracked a ceiling that you hadn't seen at State in a while. Hugh Freeze did the same thing. That wasn't the only thing he was busted. But, like, how did – like, are they satisfied with eight wins? Are they satisfied with six, seven wins, eight wins? Like, can Mike Leach get to the 10-win threshold in the SEC at some point, I think is what I'm fascinated about. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated about that with Kiffin as well. But, you know, people call me a homer, but I, I, I just feel a little more certain about that or if I had to bet on it just because of – because the offense isn't so, like, can this work here? You know Kiffin's offense is going to work. He just needs some talent on the defensive side of the football. I just wonder what the air raid ceiling is in a league with more speed than anywhere else in the country. Yeah, and they got to recruit, and that's never been something he's done. Although he does deserve a bunch of credit for signing a – I think they've fallen a little bit, but they're somewhere in the 25 range. I'll, I'll pull it up quickly. But That quarterback quite, got legit too, supposedly. Yeah. Guy grew up uh, watching Mike Leach. He's from Lubbock. <laughs> so he awesome. yeah so he grew up watching Mike Leach now gets to play for him which is pretty cool but uh yeah he's legit uh I mean they did well in recruiting which is something that everybody was worried about with Mike Leach is uh, I mean is he really going to care about it that much he spends more time in Key West than anywhere else he's definitely not going to be your like burning the midnight oil just recruiting recruiting 23 according to rivals is where Mississippi State finished um Five four-stars as opposed to Ole Miss's eight, for example. So Ole Miss, six spots ahead, but the only difference is, you know, three four-stars and everything else is basically the same. Uh, so they did well there, but are they going to have the talent to do it? That's a great question. Um, when you're so simple, can you consistently compete with a place like Alabama or Texas A&M? And maybe that's not realistic to ask of uh, a place like Mississippi State or Ole Miss. Maybe, you know, win, go to a bowl game every year, win six, seven, eight games. Maybe you sneak up and win 10 every four or five years and and we'll be happy. That might be the ceiling. And I 
think they'd be okay with it? Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you, there's that old cliche in sports. is like you don't want to be the guy after the guy. You want to be the guy two guys removed from the guy, right? Like whoever replaced Bear Bryant flamed out, then Gene Stallings won a national title or two. Like was Moorhead there long enough to be the guy in the middle that kind of takes the fall? Like was that bad enough to temper State fans' expectations to be like, okay, we can kind of come back down to earth here. We kind of realized that Mullen was maybe a little bit of a peak unless we catch lightning in a bottle. That's going to be kind of the interesting part of me to where Ole Miss was like Kiffin walked into, I would argue a little bit easier situation to where the last half decade for Ole Miss football had been such a disaster. Having fun watching Ole Miss play football with one of the worst defenses I've ever seen. And that's up there with the 2018 team is, and those fan bases were happy. Like that fan base was happy as a clam to go down and you're great. Beating Indiana is a good win. Like, credit to them but they couldn't stop anybody and it's a frustrating brand of football to watch but nobody gave a shit that they thought that was awesome I just wonder how the differing expectations among the fan base kind of play into these guys legacies if I had to bet I would actually bet both guys are there longer than five years and you're kind of thinking they're on the surface yeah well you know no like no kidding that's obvious but if you look at the tenures of the coaches both of those schools have had if you take out Dan Mullen Ole Miss ain't had a guy go more than five years. Ole Miss ain't had a guy sit, reach year six since Cutcliffe, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, State was kind of a turning door before that. I know Cheryl had a couple good years. But, you know, I, I guess I'm saying if they're still there in year six and not on a hot seat, which I think that would be the case, I think both programs are in a pretty good place. Yeah. They, Mississippi State, and you can say this about Ole Miss too, actually, um, they just need somebody to, to hang out for a while. And I think Mike Leach is that guy, too. Uh, Ole Miss fans are so worried about, you know, is Kiffin going to go? What jobs would he leave for? Is he going to leave after year two? I think this is Mike Leach's last stop as a head coach. I think he'll be at Mississippi State for as long as they will let him, and I don't think he's going anywhere else. I think this is it. Uh, Apparently, um, he has told people that. Like, he's even invested in – he owns a bunch of property there. Like, I think this is his final stop. Um. And I think they need that. They just need somebody that, unlike Mullen, even though Mullen was great, won't be looking every year. I mean, could you imagine as a fan, and you know, I guess you can say Kiffin did it this year. It was mostly trolling. But every single year, for the last like five years of Mullen's tenure, he was, one, he was looking to go somewhere else. I, I was told a story about one night during his coach's show that during commercial breaks, he had real estate apps up on his phone looking at properties at some of the open jobs sitting next to the radio guy doing the Mississippi State Coaches Show looking for houses somewhere else. I mean, it, it was – I mean, that's how, uh, how bad he wanted to get out of there. And I think it's good for them, if he can win, uh, to just provide a little stability and just comfort and – okay, this guy's going to go to bowl games and he's going to win and you're not going to have to worry about Tennessee or Miami or anywhere else because this is his final stop. Uh, that'll be really good for them. It, it's also his, like, long-awaited crack at the SEC, right? And that Mullen story is so believable. I mean, how the man spent the entire Egg Bowl week of 2017 leveraging Tennessee so he could go to Florida. Like, that man was not interested in putting together a game plan. No. He was not scared by Matt Luke's chin, nor did he give a shit. Like, that guy, that guy was out. And I think he finally decided for good, but that's a good point. I think, you know, Leach is probably happy there. And, you know, on the flip side of that, if it works – or I say flip side of that, 
if it works out for Leach, good for State. They're going to have a guy there for a long time. Where on the flip side of that is everyone – I mean, you even got it this year. It's like, you know, Giffen wins eight games next year, he's gone. It's like, why? Because he won ten games at FAU one year and got Ole Miss to confidence. And even with that, you know, Kiffin answered a question at his opening press conference. Like, and I know all coaches do this to some degree, but he got asked about this being a stepping stone job, and he was like, you should check out my buyout. And I think there is a little bit of truth to that. There's a little bit of merit to it to where I think the list of jobs he would actually leave for is a lot smaller than think, than think it is. And this will sound outlandish, but, like, had Texas called him or whatever after the Herman thing, I'm not so sure he takes it after year one at Ole Miss. And it's becoming more and more apparent that Texas is a Texas problem, not a coach problem. Like, I just think the list of schools Kiffin would leave for is smaller than some might want to think. I agree with that completely. I mean, it, and it depends on who you talk to. I mean, I've been told from multiple different people, and I guess the counter question is, well, how would they know? Uh, but apparently, uh, word is that he seems to be getting a lot more comfortable being there, that he likes it more than he expected he would, um, that Keith Carter uh, is staying true to his, all I want you to do is coach football, don't get my program in trouble, and do whatever you want. I don't care. You don't have to be here. If you don't want to be here, go fishing in Boca. Just go win football games while you're here. That there is apparently a really good rapport between the two of them. Like, they're on the same page. Um, the facilities project is going to get announced here soon. And that he is reportedly – I say reportedly, nobody's reported it. But according to people that I've talked to that would probably know this, he's a lot more comfortable there than he expected he would be. Now, if UCLA comes calling tomorrow, that, that probably changes things some. But I'm with you. I'm, there aren't that many better jobs than one in the SEC West, even if it's Ole Miss or Mississippi State. There really aren't that many better jobs. And on top of that, fair or not, there are some places that will pretend like they're above a guy like him, that they won't like the Twitter antics, they, they won't like the reputation and stuff like that. There are programs that would be above that. Like if Michigan, I got somebody asked me about Michigan. Would Michigan you know, call Lane Kiffin? And I, I say no. I, I don't think they would because they're so full of themselves that they couldn't handle a guy that's tweeting about refs. I, I actually believe that. I agree too. And it's also because he's not a Michigan man. But I, for one, am stunned. It took a middle-aged divorcee a couple – couple months to find his footing in Oxford, and then it became a uh, nice place for him to hang out for a while. <laughs> I agree with you wholeheartedly in that sense. It's like, yeah, UCLA comes con. It's probably a little different. And there's also the factor of, and, you know, a couple of the guys that are real connected on the beat have kind of been all over this for a while. It's like he plays chummy with, with Saban in public, but everyone you talk to behind the scenes tells you there's a real desire to knock him off the pedestal and to beat him. And it, it, I, I say malicious. It's not malicious is the right word, but it, it's burning, and it, it's what fuels him a lot of the time, despite him being kind of chubby, chummy with him online and, you know, I guess in the public, public eye. But I, I think there's a real desire to kind of dethrone him. I mean, hell, and if you look at him, it's like my real predecessor, uh, Hugh Freeze, like you know, not discounting the Matt Luke thing. Like, you know, if that clown can do it, I can do it here. I think there's a little bit of that there as well. Oh, for sure, uh, without a doubt. Uh, I think this next recruiting class Huge. is gonna is going to be kind of a mark of whether or not he decides he can stay and actually win at Ole Miss. I, I like that. 
it, it was reported that the Auburn thing between he and Auburn was real. I, I'm not discounting or discrediting that information because it could be. I just I doubt it. Um, I do not believe that he wanted desperately wanted the Auburn job. I kind of feel like, and again, this is just a feeling and uh, also an informed feeling that the Auburn thing was just kind of trolling. Uh, oh, possible ne- like negotiating tactics. Print newspaper at four thirty in the morning. Yeah, and so, um, but this next recruiting class, and this, and how the season goes as well. But the the next recruiting class, I think, will be a really important piece for him to decide. I can actually win here because if he were to stick around and win at the level that I think that he can, he will be Ole Miss's Dabo Sweeney. And if you're not familiar with Clemson people and and the way they look at that guy at Clemson, they will change the name of every problematic building on campus to Dabo Hall. I mean, he is a god there. He is Clemson's Paul Bear Bryant. But there's no Nick Saban following. He is the guy forever. Buildings, streets, children, dogs will be named after that guy for the rest of time. That is the kind of thing that he could do at Ole Miss because Vaught was a very long time ago, and that was also during a time that Ole Miss doesn't always want to glorify anyway. He would be the, the true first, at least in the modern era, to actually win and sustain at the highest level at Ole Miss, and he would be it. He would be the Nick Saban of Ole Miss. He'd be the Dabo Sweeney of Ole Miss. And I, I can't help but think that that might be appealing to somebody. It would be me. Oh, for sure. And he doesn't – one, he would handle I – mean, he's already probably tasting a little bit of the rock star status about winning six wins and injecting some energy in a program that was devoid of it. But he doesn't have to do – I mean, not that this is realistic anyway, but he doesn't have to do the full Dabo Sweeney. If he did what Hugh Freeze did but didn't lose to Arkansas, Florida, and Memphis and got Ole Miss to a playoff one time, he would have basically already achieved that. If Ole Miss made a college football playoff, that man would probably have a statue outside. Now, maybe he needs to make two if he's over there over 15 years. But if he's flirting with the playoff or whatever most years, and I'm not forecasting that or projecting that, just kind of going along with this, I think you're exactly right. And I also think he would handle it better than you know the last guy that kind of got – into that air. And I don't think you would also see mail-ins at 11 a.m. in the Liberty Bowl against Memphis. And I don't think you would beat – I mean, hell, people always – like, no one gives this enough credit. Hugh Freeze in 2015 beat Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Mississippi State and lost the West. How is that even mathematically possible? I mean, that, that almost seems like a statistically impossible thing to do. Obviously, it's not. you got to play two, three West opponents, whatever the hell it is. But, good Lord, how in the world does that even happen – and so, yeah, I agree with that point. I think, I think, uh, I think he would definitely kind of feel more comfortable with staying with with kind of the status they would give him. And as we kind of transition to that, speaking of like legacies and status, we'll just run the full gauntlet of the state of sports in Mississippi. What an interesting basketball season! And I don't even necessarily mean that in a good way. What was that kind of like over there? Obviously, y'all are much closer to the ground, but like, Howen had a really frustrating year. Kermit's team came a game away from the NCAA tournament, but I would argue was one of the more miserable watches that I've seen in the last five, seven years. Like, what just an odd year, but it wasn't boring. Yeah, I um, I, I hated watching Ole Miss play basketball. It was horrible. It was awful. I, I hated it. Um, that is not 
and contrast that with what Alabama did in their style, the way they play. It's not just that they won, it's, it's how they're winning. And when you're in a place like Mississippi where football is the thing and baseball is the number two thing, even though basketball makes money, baseball is the number two thing, you can't just – well, I mean, you can win games if you're winning at the highest level, but if you're going to be NIT bound, you, you better have fun. It better be fun. Yep. And and that was not. It, it was a horrible watch. The difference between the two programs right now, of course, Howland, I mean, has been there longer. Uh, he's recruited better. And a lot of people, and, and I think you disagree with this, think that he has underachieved relative to the talent he's brought in. Last year's team was not going to make the NCAA tournament, and they had two NBA players on it. I mean, Reggie Perry was getting rotational minutes for Brooklyn there for a while. I, don't, I haven't checked up on it lately, but he was playing for the Brooklyn Nets as a rookie for a while, and they weren't going to make the tournament, but we don't know. So the last tournament that happened, his team made it. They got bounced by Liberty in the first round at 10 o'clock Central uh, out of San Jose, so nobody watched it. But he had made the most recent tournament. The program was better than what he left behind or, or what was left for him. It is better. But they did lose a bunch from last year's team, so the expectations were kind of low. And then they started playing well at the end of the year. They've got three. Is it Stewart that's testing NBA waters? He's not going to get the the answer that he wants. He'll be back to Mississippi State. He's not ready yet. Uh, but you've got Molinar, Stewart, um, and Smith coming back. Young group, talented group. So fans are – I mean, you have some people that want him to get fired, but – weren't there it's so different than with Ole Miss because you remember at the beginning of the season it was coming from inside the program inside out NCAA tournament team most talented team they've ever had real length real defense this is a good team it's a tournament team no doubt and then when you lose the way that they did it's not just that they lost it's how they lost it was just awful to watch it's time to start asking questions about this working I'm not saying he should be on a hot seat I don't think that's appropriate in the COVID year but I think it's completely fair and this does it I've learned it has rubbed people the wrong way my uh, my Twitter header came from the Ole Miss spirit uh, I was pretty critical of Ole Miss basketball this year and I think it's fair to start asking if it's going to to work because that brand of basketball that's not winning games next year either Agree. Great monologue there because then the Howland thing, like that's to me, that's the story of Howland is that the recruiting worked to his detriment because he arrived on campus and started pulling dudes left and right from day one. I mean, hell, it started with Malik Newman and that kid ended up being a being a fringe rotational guy at Kansas. And, you know, sometimes you just miss. You know, I know he, was, he had to play point guard that first year and it wasn't really his fit and you can blame it on that. You can blame it on a lot of things. Basketball is a weird sport. It just doesn't work out. But when you start signing all these dudes, and I would argue in basketball, it becomes even more consequential and the hype train gets even louder because it's not a 25-person class. You could sign three studs, and it's like, okay, this team should be in the second weekend, no questions asked. And that's just not really how it works. I would argue that's a tenth – not a tenth. It's probably a fifth, borderline fourth of the battle. And you know they have all this talent. It was the same deal with that 2018 season where that one week that made Ole Miss's entire season, they beat Auburn at home – and they go to Starkville for that huge game where Ole Miss wasn't quite ranked yet, but they were going to be ranked in the next week's rankings had it come Monday and State was ranked. 
and Ole Miss gets down 12 points early in that game and comes back to win, it's like, yeah, Bree and Tyree's really good. Blake Kinson had the game of his life. Like, how did this happen? Like, how in the world is State, with all their length and athleticism, how are they not just running Ole Miss out of the gym offensively? And that's kind of been the story the whole time. Is there – it's such a – and it's a two different ways, but it's kind of such a tough product to watch offensively at times, particularly with Howen. I think that's what's bummed people out. Because if he did it with a bunch of recruits you've never heard of, yeah, it wouldn't be overwhelmingly, hell yeah, he's our guy of the future. But you also wouldn't have the level of frustration amongst State's fan base that you've had. And then conversely with Kermit, I would agree with you. I think this team really – this Ole Miss team really, really got screwed on the fact that they didn't have a normal con- non-conference schedule where you get tested in late November, whether it goes well for you or not. You have that week where they don't have class after finals and you kick the shit out of two really bad schools. You practice all the time and really kind of learn about each other. Because once this team learned each other's chemistry, they weren't great offensively, but they were even better defensively and they were competent. And I think that's what you saw in late January, early February. I think the question with Kermit is, one, I think he'll always recruit front court dudes. I know he's had some misses, but, like, gosh, damn, Romello White was such a good basketball player. Yeah, and it's was. such a shame that he didn't get the full year to have the fan base kind of get endeared to him. He was a treat to watch. Can Kermit get guys in the backcourt that could score at a level that's going to kind of make, you know, in the guard-oriented game, make them a competitive team? Because he inherited Brian Tyree. I know Terrence Davis is a wing, but he inherited him too. Schuler was okay, but not consistent enough to make it count, but that wasn't his guy either. And then, you know, Bryce Williams is playing rotational minutes for Cade Cunningham's basketball team. And Matthew Morell, I think, will be fine, but he wasn't good this year. And Jarko Joyner turned it on too late. So, like, I guess what I'm saying is Deshaun Ruffin better hit from the gate. Like, that's the, question, that, that's the, that's the determining factor for me with Kermit. Yeah, for sure. And, and then, of course, they're dependent on transfers, but I have – I mean, that's college basketball now. I mean, Alabama had transfers. Gonzaga started a transfer. You can't be adverse to it. Like, that, that no. has to be part of your recruiting plan at least 55%. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, they at least got a, a good one. The, the usage rate for this guy out of Miami, help me out, because I, I, mean, I didn't watch Miami basketball. When you look at his numbers, you think, man, this guy should have been pretty productive. But there are some nights where, I mean, got up four shots in a game. Shooting – 54% from the field or whatever, a true seven-footer uh, shoots free throws pretty well. I mean, what was he, mid-60s, 65%, something like that. So he's okay. Why are you not force-feeding the basketball to that dude? Yeah, I Nasir Brooks, not going to pretend I watched a ton of him either, but I did. I got home from work one night and had nothing to do, and I watched that upset win they had over Duke. And one, Miami was a terrible team. But even in that game, that kid was like – it was like Duke doesn't want to go in the paint because of this kid. I think the greatest thing he offers is rim protection. It seemed like at the end of the year, maybe they gave him a few more touches. So I'm kind of interested, like in terms of that kid reaching his ceiling, what is he offensively? Because I think he is going to protect the rim for you, but it's like, what is he actually offensively? Like, I don't think he engaged much. He was on a terrible team. I don't pretend to know what happened at Cincinnati, but I think it's a good start. And I think he needs to go get one more wing and one more post player that's ready to contribute now. And then, you know, I mean, if Moreau and Joyner don't pan out next year, then, I mean, you're talking that up with the Bryce Williams type misses, you know, the Austin Crowley, who was just horrendous this year after showing signs last year type of misses. And that kind of goes in now what becomes a pretty long line of guards that haven't panned out. I actually think both of them will be fine. I went to that NIT game out here in Frisco, which was quite the, quite the experience. That was one of the stranger 
sporting events I've ever been to. But even in that game, as bad as it was, I think Joyner's going to be fine. I think if you watched him consistently for the last month and a half, it's like this kid kind of knows what he's doing. He's figured it out. I think it just took him too long in a shortened season. And so when you look at Joyner, I see, I tend to agree with you because if you just look at box scores, you think, okay, an undersized guard that doesn't shoot well from three, like you can't rely on him for offense. But I wonder how much of that is due to an offense that does not exactly do its best job of creating outside looks. I asked Richard this question and he can't really answer questions like this, understandably so, I guess, but after their second loss to Georgia, I said, I'm not a basketball expert by any stretch. I'm not going to pretend like I am. I know Kermit Davis is a good basketball coach, far better than I could be, and he's forgotten more about the game than I could ever know. But why is it so easy for Georgia to create open looks and not Ole Miss? So if, if, you know, if, if it's great coaching and everything's good and the players just aren't good enough, why is it? that Georgia could do it, but Ole Miss can't. Yeah, and that was like the worst part of it. That was my question is, is, why does it look so easy for everybody else to create open looks? I mean, even the national championship game against a really good, talented defense, Baylor was able to run sets and offense that created open looks, and Ole Miss can't do it. So what am I missing when, when, I, when the defense is, Great coach. You don't know what you're talking about. Players just aren't good enough, doesn't have the right guys. Why is it that their opponents could do it? Why is it that Baylor in the national championship game against an undefeated team can do it, but Ole Miss can't? What am I missing? I just think that it was it. they didn't know what they were. Like, if you're a basketball team and, you know, it comes down to crunch time. I mean, you're a big NBA fan. Uh, we're, we'll have to get to Zion before I get you out of here, even though if we, I might keep you till midnight at this rate. But, like, when you're in crunch time, like, you got to know who your guy is and where you're going with the basketball when you own your own possessions and you have to actually get buckets. And even in the, when you look at the most crucial possessions of the LSU game, the game that pretty much determined their season, they had no idea where they were going. It's like, do we throw the ball into Romello? Is Jarko Joyner going to keep being unconscious and throwing up shit that probably shouldn't go in but is still going anyway? Is Shure going to create because he's made one shot to that point? I just don't think they knew what they were offensively. And ultimately, that falls on the coach because whether you have a good option or not, you have to decide on something. You can't go into the last three minutes of basketball games and be like, eh, figure it out. Like, they, they, yeah. when you get into the crunch time, like, you have to know exactly what you're doing and why and who the ball's going through and who you're playing off of. And, you know, you got to March 10th or whatever the hell that was, and they still had no idea. I think that's what it was more than anything. And I think that's why they need – you know, Joyner or Morrell, I say Ruffin, I don't know, he's a freshman, but they need one of those guys to be that dude next year out of the two. Yeah, it's a pivotal year. I mean, we've, we've talked about it some. I, I, I don't want to do the hot seat thing. I certainly don't want to do the tournament or bust thing. I, I always think that's dangerous. I mean, you have people that did it. I, I read a, uh, I guess you can call it a column uh, from somebody that covers Mississippi State here in the state, and it was, is this year Omaha or bust after Mississippi State start? And I, I hate doing that. So I'm not going to do that with Ole Miss basketball this year. But things have to look better or else you're going to lose people. 
Oh, I think you nailed it there. Like, they one, they better not suck, and two, it better look better. And I think to some degree the same case is with Howen, right? Because, like, yeah. from what I read with that team – I think it might be tournament or bust with him no matter what. I think they have to make it like, or else he's gone. I think it was what, like, Howen was this year, right? And it didn't necessarily look great to where it may be actually tournament or bust for him. To where Kermit – and the weird part about Kermit's deal is if they hold on to that lead against LSU, the perception is entirely different. It's like this guy's yeah. two tournaments yeah. in three years. Like – where do we start erecting the statue type of thing? Like, when's the last time that's happened? It was, you know, Rob Evans or whatever. And that's just kind of the fickle nature of the business. But I agree. I think they're in similar boats for very different reasons. But, you know, obviously you're way more plugged into state than I am and watch more than them. It seems like that's kind of what it was for Howen this year. He had the pass with COVID, maybe a younger team. But the fact that it didn't look good maybe has turned it into tournament or bust for Howen next year. I think it, it's to that point, yeah. And you've got people there that are not um, – they've turned on the athletic director, a lot of people. Because I've although Chris this, yeah, Chris Limonis is obviously working out, but guy before that, although there was never a press conference, there's never a press conference uh, about why they fired a coach with cause um, – because, hey, they're interested in protecting his family, though. I mean, families need privacy when it's – anyway. Um, so that that happened. And then Moorhead comes and goes. That doesn't work, apparently. Um, women's basketball in one year went from one of the premier programs in the country to not making the tournament and turning down an NIT invitation – not because of the excuse they gave, which is that's not, you know, we're a championship standard and that's not our standard, so we're not going to play. No, they weren't going to have enough players to field a team to play in it. That's why. So they've had a mass exodus, lost a bunch of games, didn't work, and then Vic Schaefer goes to the Final Four or Elite Eight or whatever at Texas in his first year. People are out, out on John Cohen. I've heard from some Mississippi State fans anyway that don't want him making the next basketball hire if it comes down to that, that they want it to be somebody else. And he is – I mean, that that wasn't even his guy. But they don't want him making that hire, at least some of them. I don't know how big it is, but we've heard from enough of them that are are out on this. Yeah, and that's fascinating. And honestly, I I was talking to – I can't remember I was talking to the other day. Maybe it was Colin. I was texting him or whatever. And, like, obviously, I don't keep up with state women's basketball, but I got to appreciate the job that Vic Schaefer did and what he built. But what he built, no matter who you are, should be able to withstand a couple years of fall off to, okay, maybe you're around a 32 team, even if you're not working out, okay, maybe you miss the tournament the next year. But, like, that quick fall from grace, if you're talking about the ranking, and particularly with as much as that fan base got into women's basketball, I know Howland hasn't worked out in the Limonis, not Limonis, the Canazero thing was embarrassing. Couldn't you argue just the totality – of how big of a disaster that the women's basketball coaching hire in that sort of a time carries as much weight as any hire he's made. That is crazy, isn't it? I mean, they were one shot away from a national championship. And, and a, year, they, a this, year later, he leaves, and it's like, what? or a year after he leaves, it's like, what happened? Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it's a place that hasn't won a national championship. That, that would have been the first. Um, so, even though it's women's basketball, it, it clearly would have been significant for them, but – I can't decide what to compare that to, what it would be like. Because they were they hadn't won a championship. That would be like, I think, Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma 
and them going two and ten the next season. Yeah, I think that's the equivalent. Yes, and like not only that, it's like I mean I, I don't know the lady, I don't know anything about her, but from reading the transfer stuff, it's like not only do they go two and ten, but every impact player is like a piece. This doesn't seem fun because right, the whole deal with the Schaefer thing was is even before he left and it, it played into it after he left, it's like, well, he just assembled the most talented recruiting class they've ever had, even after all the success they had. So you bring in the most talented recruiting class of any of those prime years, and then this happens? Like, how, that, that's not a great look. No, not at all. And so some people are out on that. I mean, if, if Mike Leach doesn't work, it's definitely over. I mean, you can go ahead. If they have a losing record this year, there will be pressure to, to have a change. And I would argue rightfully so, because not a lot of athletic graders don't hear that many strikes, right? Like, I mean, he's had counting women's basketball with the way they support it, basically three, four bites at the apple, and he's hit on one. And I would argue State's so good as a baseball program, as long as you're not a total dope. And Milmonis has done a fine job. He's not even, yeah. like, borderlining on dope. I'm not saying that. But unless you hired some dope who's texting people in the dugout, like, these programs not run themselves. But if you're a smart baseball guy – it, it doesn't take rocket science or some inventive hire at Ole Miss or, or I say Ole Miss. We don't know because it's only been Mike Bianco. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to hire a baseball coach to state that can win a bunch of games. That's probably a good transition to the third sport wrapping up. What a strange year for both these schools. Ole Miss kind of flying as high as you could possibly fly for a while. Struggled a little bit at late in the non-conference. I still think they're a really good baseball team. But, you know, we hit on this Elko news earlier in the pod, but, like, you feel free to rehash it here. They don't replace him. It, they have to be better by committee. The pitching staff has to be better. They have to have less holes in the lineup. You can't have Justin Bench go hitless for five games and uh, Caden Dunhurst not be a factor for a week. Like, this has to be better one through eight, not the guy that's replacing him. That really sucks. Yeah, and I think it's it's so significant to a point that I still think they can win a regional. Hell, I still think that they are talented enough. If they everything goes right, they can still make it to Omaha. I mean, Tim Elko was not their only good player. I mean, they've got two arms that would make every rotation in America. Every I, maybe that's a stretch, but I I, I don't oh, think they so. Make every rotation in America, not Vanderbilt. So I mean, they can still make it, but I do think if the season ends and they it doesn't end in middle America, in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, then this should be a factor in the way you evaluate the season. I, th I think it's that significant. I mean, it's a, a 340 hitter that was in the 400s in the last four weeks, right? Oh, yeah. He was in the SEC and RBIs. I mean, y'all you, probably did this segment on radio. What's the one guy each team couldn't afford to lose, or probably the way it was better framed, what's – one guy, you give me his numbers, because Elko hadn't proven at that point. I mean, there was a world after five games where it was like, is this actually going to happen for this guy? That seems silly in hindsight, but you know, I was saying the same thing. Is, is it going to actually happen for this guy? If you gave one guy's numbers, one pitcher and one hitter for Ole Miss and determined their ceiling, Elko was the hitter bar none. He was the most important baseball player on their team. If he hits, they were going to be really good. If he didn't hit, it seemed like they were not going to be great. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the worst possible guy to lose. There's no way to sugarcoat it. It really blows. But at the same time, you do get Kel Baker and you get Trey LaFleur back. And I think there's an opportunity there. I don't think either one of them can carry a lineup. But I think there's a lack of opportunity factor with both of them to where, you know, Trey LaFleur wasn't consistent. But you're talking about 23 at-bats. You know, Kel Baker had one good weekend last year and it was starting to leak out that, 
okay, maybe this guy can't, you know, struggling with velocity, blah, 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 whatever. But he has had the year from hell this year. He misses the opening week with COVID, then struggles and then breaks his wrist or whatever. I'm just saying that, like, it, it's not out on him. He's not Chase Cockrell yet where it's just not going to happen. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and chalk that up. It's just he's had the season from hell. I just don't think either one of those guys is going to carry a lineup, and that's why you're going to have to be better everywhere else. Yeah, I thought about this too. Maybe it's just too much shuffling, but because of Baker's struggles, I mean, I expect Bianco to just plug him or LaFleur in at first base, and that's how they're going to do it this weekend just to see. But I thought about since especially Baker had been, frankly, so bad, Fair. where a situation where you make Plumley an everyday guy, uh, possibly put Kevin Graham back at first, but it's not like he's perfect there, uh, or put Justin Bench there because he can literally do everything on a baseball field, bring McCants into the infield, maybe move Chatney over to third, and have uh, a plus – outfielder instead of a freshman trying to figure it out in McCants and center. So you get better in the field at center and it's not like the production at the plate is any worse. And it's probably better at this point. If, if he found a way to kind of move pieces around and do it that way, unless he just fully believes in Baker uh, to figure it out. But since he hasn't, I thought about that moving uh, bench to first, if he can do it, if not Graham to first, but making Plumley an everyday guy, bringing McCants back into the end, doing it that way. Yeah, I think you're dead on with that. I mean, hell, there was an argument to be made that even before this Elko injury, Leatherwood, great kid, you know, kind of a good story, really wanted to come to Ole Miss, goes to the JUCO ranks to get there, but he just was simply not cutting it. And so even before this Elko injury, there's an argument to be made is like, why don't you just roll with Plumley out there? I mean, with limited opportunity, the kid's been a much better hitter than I thought. He's been quote-unquote okay. But you're getting, like you said, a plus defender. And the offense for a while, and I know Leatherwood had a decent weekend at Florida, but for sample size as a whole, was not going to be any worse unless Plumley literally got out every single time he went to the plate. So I think there was always like already an argument there to be made, and I think it's only enhanced, like you just mentioned, with this Elko injury, with the whole McCants thing, I don't even think you have to move anyone else around. The kid's a natural infielder, and I think he would be a good center fielder with time. Like that first ball he missed in the in the gap uh, that when Gunner was still pitching that allowed the first run. Like to me, when I watched that, I was like, okay, that's a ball that he gets with two months of starts in the outfield or a lot more yeah. practice, and he would be okay at it. He's not a bad outfielder. But you're asking a true freshman who's playing because he's hit at an elite rate in terms of freshman to go play the hardest position in the outfield. I, I won't want to when he's it, never done it. Right. I don't want to call it unfair, but it's a tough job to where Justin Bench, like you just said, that man can literally do anything on a baseball diamond. I think McCants' struggles in center field only underscore just how ridiculous Justin Bench's versatility is. You can't just go out and 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 hawk it at center field and be okay at it. Like the way he played center field for a month. And then it was like, oh, by the way, you're going to play third now is incredible to me. I mean, yeah. his value cannot be undersold. But I think you're dead on with that to where they have options. It's just at the end of the day, they need two dudes to hit. They need whoever's playing first base to hit to, well enough to overcome whatever gaps he's going to make at first base. And then they need the guy at DH to be better because you have two guys to where the sample size hasn't been very big. And then two dudes I'm just not sure about with Van Cleve and Leatherwood to where it's like, 
okay, I've kind of seen what these guys are. I'm not saying they can't turn it around. But at the same time, they've had 25 games and it's just not happening. And it, it's a fascinating situation. I just hate the way it's arisen because, I mean, Elko was having a hell of a year, man. Like it's, you know, I, I don't know what he cost himself pro-wise, but even aside from that, just from a confidence and enjoying your college career standpoint, he barely got a taste of it. And he waited his turn a long time. He got beat out by Tyler Keenan. Instead of transferring, he stuck around, kind of struggled through some things for a while at the plate, and finally got his due and was mashing the baseball and then snaps an ACL rounding first base. Like, it just the whole situation just really sucks. Yeah, and you always forget that, too. I mean, not to get sappy, but I caught myself doing it today, too, just thinking, oh, what's next? Who's next? Where do we move? Who? Who goes where? And it's like there's a, a college kid that was – I mean, I don't know what his draft stock would have been, but he was clearly improving it. He had his last year, which he was playing very well, cut short because of COVID, like you said, and then now this injury, right as things are starting to heat up some for him, he's playing well. He didn't get off to the best start, but he's recovered very nicely. Team captain, I mean, I know in their locker room, they think they're a national championship contender, so everything is falling into place, like you said, for him, and it's just just taken from him. And, I mean, apparently he's going to – might delay surgery and try to come back and play, which uh, that's it's crazy, but not as crazy as it sounds. It, I in a group message, and I was reminded that an NFL player, uh, an offensive tackle whose name we can't remember, but I'll Google it when we're off here, played an entire season on a torn ACL. I mean, Tiger Woods won the 2008 U.S. Open on a torn ACL, so I guess it's possible. That just sounds crazy, though. I agree, and like we, like we, were, I was talking with Colin a second ago about it. It's like I, I would have, I would find it more likely it's his right leg, and so he's a right-handed hinder, and that's his back leg. I would find it more likely in terms of a pain tolerance and kind of re- production perspective if it were his left one because that's his front leg to where you're planning on that right leg every time you swing, and that's kind of where your weight transfer originates. And I'm not saying you can't do it, and I'm not pretending to be a doctor. The only time I pretended to be one was on radio. But it just seems slightly less likely to where that's your back plant leg and that's kind of what you're doing. So I I hope so. I I think that was maybe a little bit of wishful thinking because it's such a devastating injury for what seems like a really good kid. I'm not saying it can't happen, but I I just have my doubts with that. I I hope it does happen for him. I hope he comes in in late May and gets two, three big hits for him on some weekend and gets what he deserves because this is a really crappy situation. I just have my doubts about it. What's fascinating to me is the flip side of things in the other program in the state, Mississippi State. You've watched them way more closely than I have just by default because I think I've watched two full state baseball games. But they seem to be okay so far. But Arkansas just kind of came in and kicked their ass, and that happens. I mean, hell, State's done it to Ole Miss twice in the last half decade where Ole Miss had a pretty good team and State just you know, throat stomped them. The last one being it almost got Mike fired in 2019. But, like, what is what is their deal and what's keeping them from reaching their full potential? They had a better weekend last weekend, obviously. They did have a better weekend. Um, they, they don't hit the ball well enough. I think when – just like with the Arkansas series, when they get – and even Kentucky, they had to win uh, Friday 3-2 to two and Saturday 4-3. to three. It's not yeah. like they lit up a, a Kentucky team that was better than, I guess, people expected, but – um, definitely a step down from Arkansas. Still score, couldn't score against Kentucky, and they're bad in the field. I mean, they, they gave Arkansas – it was Friday's game where a dropped infield fly kept an inning alive that ended with a three-run home run. 
I mean, that's three runs that they handed Arkansas on a dropped-in field fly. They did it this past weekend as well. Not great in the field. Um, starting pitching's been inconsistent. They don't hit the baseball well enough. I mean, there's – you asked a question earlier, is there anybody in their order that, like, would have the impact of Elko? Like, who can you not replace? I don't think there's that guy. Um, I mean, Tanner Allen's pretty good. Uh, Cumbus doesn't play every day, although I think he should at this point. Um, as far as their everyday starters, it's Tanner Allen maybe and then just a bunch of ugh, in their order. They just don't hit the baseball well enough. And so when they – like next weekend when they play Ole Miss, you're going to see – I mean, I wouldn't be shocked at all if – the over-under in the three games is under six, all three games. I mean, they just – they don't hit the baseball well enough. That's interesting because, one, that sounds – if you throw the starting pitching aside out of it because Ole Miss has been lights out starting-wise for most of the time. I'm actually shocked that uh, Drew McDaniel threw as many innings as he did tonight. I think it's time to make a change in on Sunday, but probably a conversation for another day. That sounds like Ole Miss. And you mentioned the Tanner Allen guy. It seems like – and I may have the name wrong because, again, I haven't watched a ton of them, but it seems like it's basically he and that Hatcher kid and everyone else has kind of just been a big pile of C+. Plus. Pretty much. But, uh, Sims is electric, though. My gosh, watch that guy pitch, man. He is unbelievable. Um, that's that little I, – I, I guess it's a slider, but it, it, it this cut fastball that he's throwing – I mean, he gets it up in the mid-90s, and it's got six, eight inches of movement, and he throws it so confidently, and he works fast, which I appreciate. The guy's electric. Yeah, they, uh, they've got – they've, obviously, they always have talent, but, man, they do have a couple of dudes that are absolutely electric. And Ole Miss has it too, but uh, Gunner is a treat to watch. And if you watch 2019 Gunner versus the kid that takes them out these days, it's like – you know, I, I, I had called for drug testing among the Pittsburgh Pirate scouts for a while. It's like, what the hell did they look at it with this kid? And now you can see it, right? The arm thing was effortless. The slider is just really just disgusting. And he's changed completely who he is as a pitcher. And good for him. Sometimes it just takes time. It's, I guess he last – a lot of money doing it too. Oh, hell yeah. He's, he's played himself into – he won't be there at pick 15 if I had to take a bet. He, uh, which is great for Gunner. He seems like a good, seems like a nice kid. The last thing I want to get to before we get in, I have two more radio questions for you before we get out of here. But the NCAA deal happened this week because you know when things are going great, the NCAA has got a poo poo on everyone's parade. That's just kind of their brand. Yeah. They go with the predetermined NCAA sites, and the more you read into it, this is we used to talk about this all the time. Where a story comes out, there's no nuance. Everyone throws out a take, and then when you actually digest more information, it becomes not that consequential. I think that's a little bit of the case here, right? Where it comes out, they're going to have quote unquote. You know, people see the word predetermined, and they're like, "Are you kidding me with this?" They think basketball tournament. It just basically sounds like to me they're doing it three weeks earlier to get their COVID protocols in place. And the only thing it really does is make the last two weeks of the regular season less consequential. And then the conference tournaments, unless you're on the bubble, completely irrelevant. Uh, just your thoughts on that. I don't even really know where to go with it. I think Ole Miss and State will be fine. I think that where it gets screwed is the, the scrappy West Coast school with the 1,500-seat stadium trying to meet COVID protocols and getting jobbed out of hosting. Yeah, I was one of those people that, that jumped on it. In fairness, Kendall – Absolutely buried the lead. I mean, you, you should have led with the merit-based thing, but yes. What is so hard about in at the end of April, looking at the top thirty teams? 
where you, I mean, they have a committee together. They're going to make a decision, right? Where you contact the top 30 teams and say, hey, look, you guys are the closest to hosting a regional. Not all of you are going to, but you guys are the teams that are most likely to do it. So here is our protocols. If you want to host, you can say no. But if you want to host, get your stadiums prepared for this. And then when the season ends, be prepared to execute this plan. Instead, I mean, like you said, they're rendering the last few weeks of the season obsolete. They're going to make the decision in late April. So even though they don't announce it by May 10th, from April 30th, if it's the last day of April, on, the games don't matter unless you're a bubble team. And Ole Miss and Mississippi State and even Southern Miss will not be a bubble team. They're going to be in the tournament. So if they're awarded a host, the games don't matter. If they're not awarded a host, the games don't matter. And I guess you could posture for national seed or not national seed, but it feels different. If I were Mike Bianco going to Hoover, I'd pitch Gunnar Hoagland. I wouldn't run him up 120 pitches or anything like that. I'd pull him after four. Don't get hurt. There's nothing we can gain by being here. And maybe that's what you do anyway. I mean, South Carolina did it successfully and won two national championships. But I just imagine them doing that in any other sport. Could you imagine picking bowl games and stuff like that in any way before the season ends? Or having the, tur- the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee tell what teams, what region they're going to play in before conference tournament even happens. That's what's going on here. The way you just described the first part of that in particular is a great, great point. And it's something I had not thought of at all to where it's like, how hard is it to just say – hey, you're in the mix, make sure you have this prepared in case you host, instead of rendering the last four weeks of this regular season, including the conference tournament, like two weeks, two, I don't know, within a week and a half, completely obsolete by just saying, oh, we've got to select these and then make sure you're prepared. Why not just tell the schools to be prepared for it? Like, and if they're not, then okay, strip them and give someone a late host. Like, I agree with that, but I never thought about it from that perspective. And then you mentioned the way it came out and the way it was reported. Like, on the .001% chance Kendall Rogers is listening to this, it did not come out great. But the way I read it was is he's getting information from whoever he's getting information from. And it's like he's reporting what he has because he has a nice nugget or whatever, a great story. And then he's asking, like, wait a minute, what do you mean this is predetermined? (laughs) And then he gets the text that is based on merit, and he says it later, like, by the way, it's based on merit. There's just no way in my mind Kendall's been doing it too long that he knew it was completely merit-based and knew the full situation before he kind of put that out there about the predetermined sites. And that's not a knock on him or anything. That's just the way I read into it. But, yeah, man, like, you you pretty much render Hoover obsolete. Look, man, if Ole Miss has gotten a host site, by the time they get to Hoover, I would throw Justin Bench just to let him complete the Ryan Olenek trifecta, or tri- not trifecta, that's three, where he's allowed to pitch all nine positions. And then I would just beg anyone else to pitch. What's that kid name? They have some kid – they have Cole Baker, not Kale Baker, at the back end of their bullpen. And maybe Greer Holston and just be like, I'm out of here. If you're a host site, and this year you're hosting a regional and a super, why in the world would you want to stay in Hoover? I know baseball players play baseball. I know it's a week-and-a-half layoff. But I would say Greer Holston, go throw a no-hitter, buddy. And when you give up yeah. 10 runs, we'll pack the bus. Especially when COVID's still going to be a factor. Exactly, yeah. Like, and by the way, I mean, I've said this everywhere, but uh, don't expect 
11, 12, 13,000 people in Oxford for the regional that they're going to host. When the NCAA has control. Because that's not going to happen. There's no shot. Unless it is – everything has plummeted. And even then, I don't think it's going to happen. There is no way that the NCAA is going to let Ole Miss have a 100% capacity stadium and UCLA or whoever on the West Coast is hosting can only let wives and girlfriends in. Uh, no way. There's, I, I just, I will believe it when I see it, but it's not going to happen. There's going to be a limit, without a doubt. I agree. All these people listening should just move to Texas. COVID doesn't exist where I live. They played a baseball game a mile from my house with 40,000 people. We don't have COVID here. It's awesome, uh, which I am fully in support of, by the way. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, we were going back to normal. I know people get mad. I'm not going into politics on cases and all that, but I was just glad to see people enjoying themselves at a baseball game again without being spread out for six seats. So that's all I will say about that. Last thing we'll transition into is like, I, one of the things I always enjoyed like chatting with you about was like media ideas, radio, the state of whatever, whatever blowhard bullshit Colin Cowherd said on a daily basis was. So now you guys are a three man operation now. And it was interesting when we were doing it is like, you and Richard controlled the flow of the conversation, right? Like you brought the content every day. And I thought that was a really interesting concept with the four man radio show to where like you bring the content, Richard and you dictate kind of the conversation and Hey dad being with our respective schools is like kind of the two lackeys or whatever you want to call it. How has that changed since it's been a three man deal? Like, has it been not easier or harder, but like what in your mind, what stuck out as being different is kind of going from four to three. It's still that way. Um, it's, it's still mostly that way. Um, now he has been more involved. I think it's, um, it's kind of funny. Some days you'll get, uh, a Brian Haydad that just wants to poke Richard. It just is like in the mood to, to get Richard mad. And when he's in those moods, it's, it just cracks me up so bad because that's like quality content to be. Good. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's good. I I am um. I would much prefer my future, whatever it is, where I, I'm driving everything. Right. Uh, that, that's that's kind of what I want is, and I don't know if it'll ever happen. I, again, my friends over at the Ole Miss Spirit think that I shouldn't have a job today anyway. Um. But I if I ever they don't like me, so no worries. Oh man. Um no, I think what I want is you you mentioned him. I, I want what Colin Cowherd has, what Dan Patrick has, where where I'm in control of everything. Uh the content, the flow, who's talking, when they are, who the guests are, everything. Uh of course those guys have teams of twenty. I mean, Cowherd's got like seventeen different content people that work for him. And a hair and makeup guy. Yeah, and a hair and makeup guy and somebody that uh, uh, <laughs> gave him a couple shades too dark when he first started at Fox. But, <laughs> I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's my ultimate goal. So right now I, I don't th – this isn't ideal for me personally because I, I'm impatient and I want everything, you know. Like I'm a millennial. I, I want what I want right now and give it to me or else I'm going to bitch about it. But um, – when I get there, that's what I want. So in the meantime, I just have to keep paying my dues and doing uh, everything I can to help Richard and Hey Dad, you know, do as good of a show as we can. But uh, that's not – this isn't the end game. At least I hope not. 
I brought you onto this podcast and I was like, yeah, man, come plug what you're doing now. And it took us like an hour and 12 minutes for me to allow your plug. We'll like cut and paste. I'll do some nice editing job, but you're doing (laughs) that now at one place and it's your YouTube show, which is a, is a medium that's very easy. I say very easy, very, you can monetize it a lot quicker than a lot of other mediums. Obviously you have to have talent. Like nothing is easy in this industry. But you're doing that now. Go ahead, plug away, because I've watched it a couple of times. I've enjoyed it. And like you mentioned, like I can tell you want the single like solo thing because you're good at it. Because I think the hardest thing that Cowherd does, and people love to rag on Cowherd, but do you know how hard it is to fill up, I mean, hell, an hour, three hours of airtime doing it by yourself, and the only thing you have to do, like the only option you have is to throw it to a producer, you know, every now and again. Yeah, he's got Joy sitting there. But you're good at doing that, and it's, I think it's shown in that YouTube show, so plug away. Thanks, man. Uh, it, it is hard. Uh, doing solo podcasting or radio is hard. I had to do my I, – I do a Sunday radio show. I had to do that completely alone last week. Running a board and doing two hours of just you where uh, – I mean, that's it. It's me and a microphone, and then I can't take calls because my hands are tied running the board and stuff it's really hard man and so this is mostly just um I still haven't quite figured out what I want to be or what I am even because I'm on a show with multiple other people I still don't know where I fit I didn't know where I fit when it was four I still don't know where I fit when it's three I don't know if I'm too much or I'm not enough or or anything I don't know I don't know what I am yet. And so I'm kind of trying to find myself, uh, you know, like a 19 year old sorority girl who uh, goes to and get mimosas at brunch five days a week. Like I, you know, I'm just in college trying to find myself. I'm still doing that right now. And I started doing this, this live stream on YouTube, Facebook and Periscope. And it's just me for like a half hour, just getting reps in doing this, by myself and trying to be as engaging and stuff uh, alone as I possibly can. And so far, so good. I think people are listening to it and watching it, I think. I mean, the numbers are fine, better than I expected, I guess. Um, YouTube is tough. Unless you're, you're like, if you're like Neil and Chase, who, I mean, they snap their fingers and they've got thousands of people that do whatever they're putting out there. They've just, they've built that kind of, equity and so when they went to youtube they had a bunch of people watching their youtube page and giving donations and stuff i have not built up that kind of equity and so i've got just you know a handful of subscribers on youtube and every like website that i look at that talks about building a youtube audience like the first thing is thumbnails make a grabbing thumbnail and they'll show examples and it's somebody like with like their eyes wide open and their mouth open in big letters, like emotional stuff like that. I don't know if I want to go down that road, but I guess that's the, the way to build up a YouTube following. I don't know, man. It's a lot of work. But if you, if you have a following, it will end up paying off. I'm just not there yet. And but, man, what, Yeah, it also takes time, right? You mentioned the Chase and Neil thing. I mean, you talk about the early days of their podcast. They're the first ones to admit it. It takes time to build an audience. And I mean, that, they've been doing that for like a decade, over a decade now, right? Pretty much. It was like 08, 09 when they started doing it. And then I think it went like daily in 11. I may have that wrong, but yeah, over a decade doing the podcast in general. And so it takes time to build it. And you talk about this medium, like podcast, I'm doing this right now. You think you're trying to find yourself. 
I sell cooking oil and then do a Substack newsletter on the side. Like I don't even know what I didn't even heard of Substack three months ago. I don't know what the hell this is. I'm still trying to figure it out. And then doing this podcast, we're like podcasts now are such an oversaturated market. Like you better have a following and you better be damn good, or you better just kind of want to do it for fun until it builds up after a while. Yeah. That shit takes time. And I think that's why like the Super Talk podcast obviously translates well because you get the radio listenership. And so if you don't have a huge built-in audience, like it's hard to do, which I'm perfectly fine with. And like I feel like we're in similar boats with the YouTube thing to where you get paid by Super Talk, obviously. I get paid by Darling Ingredients in Irving, Texas. Like I like doing this. I did it because I got bored with my day job and it's easier to kind of have the patience to build it up when your livelihood is not dependent on it. Like I, I'm not asking for advertisers to pay my rent. I'm asking for advertisers to cover my bar tabs in the public golf out here, which is a little bit, little bit of a better place to be. And it's funny, like when I left the media industry and I got into marketing and all that shit out here, like, and I came into radio as a writer by trade. And so when I got into radio, I didn't dislike it by any means. But dude, to be honest, when I was at Super Talk, and that's probably why I got so frustrated and, and spam mailed you so many nights, like pissed off about the state of the website, which saw y'all got a new one. Awesome. Glad that finally happened. I was like so much more. Looks concerned. really good. Yeah. yeah. I was like so much more concerned with the writing side and I hadn't had a full-time job before. And I'm walking into this place, like thinking they should like, cater to my strengths and it's like this place has been around 25 years i'm 23 years old they don't give a shit what like i want <laughs> like that's just not how this works and i'm grateful for that experience because if i'd walked into like this corporate america job thinking these people are gonna have to bend the knee to me they probably would have been like get a load of this guy but it's interesting i so i had like and I, like radio obviously grew on me i had fun with it but i never thought i would like truly miss three hours of radio every day until I left. And I think that's honestly part of what the, the podcast appeal has been to where I was just going to do a newsletter originally. And then I was like, no, I'll just start a podcast. Cause you know, no one has a podcast these days. Um, but it was just enjoying talking again. And I really just kind of enjoyed like the aspect of going on air every day. And I think that's just the nature of uh, kind of doing something every day for so long. And like, I imagine if you went a month without having a microphone in front of your face, you would probably be like, What's going on here? But I don't think that's something people realize until they don't do it anymore. Yeah. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do it. Right. It's uh, weird. Especially when, when you think you're on the cusp of, of getting it and getting there. And I, I think I'm, like I said, I'm still trying to find myself and what my style is and how I want to approach things. Like bringing up Cowherd again the best thing that he does in people like that guy at Barstool just constantly makes fun of him for it. And it, it's funny, but the thing that Cowherd does that makes him unique and, and special and really good at his job, aside from the backwards hat thing is when he compares sports situations life. to real life. Yeah. I mean, that's really good. And that's, that's his niche and, and it, he's great at it. I, I feel like I'm kind of close to that. I feel like I'm almost there. And if you took – if that w somehow, like, had to stop, I, I would lose my mind because I think I'm close. But um, the, the industry is just constantly, constantly changing. I don't know if you saw the article about Spotify, what they're doing for Joe Rogan. Um, Spotify is going to do a very unique thing, and guess what they're going to do? So instead of having to listen to Joe Rogan after 
they record the podcast with their special guest and have a producer edit it up and then they upload it and then you get to listen or watch on YouTube because they're on YouTube. Uh, you can listen to it live. Very innovative, new thing that Spotify is going to try. Uh, I think they should call it radio. So we've gone, we've gone from only having radio on it to podcasting's being everything. Now everything's going back live. It's just, it, it's a moving target. It is constantly moving. It's so hard to keep up with. And I don't know if anybody's doing it right anymore. I mean, e, I think ESPN has completely failed. They've, they've failed as a, as a company, a, a content producing company. They have completely failed. Um, Fox pivoted to video and they're now pivoting away from video. I mean, it, it, it's a mess and nobody has a grasp on it except for, to me, a place like The Athletic. They're not trying to do anything else other than written content that you pay for. And I think it's working. Um, it's tough. Like John Boy. I mean, John Boy's got a whole media company now. The guy that used to make funny baseball videos. That doesn't happen five years ago. I agree. It's crazy. I, and I don't, I don't even know where to go. Like my dad always asked me, you know, what's next for you? What, what's next? What, what are you trying to do? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't know what's next. Because what new thing is going to come up in this, in, in this field next week that'll change everything? I'll tell you two things too, based off the radio thing is like, I never appreciated this when I was there, but like I had a decent following from kind of writing some different stuff in student media and working, you know, somewhat full time with the spirit or whatever, but like super talks audience, like boosted me tremendously. And I only worked there for what, like 18 months, I guess it was closer to like 20, almost two years, like that built in audience that you get from Super Talk because so many people still listen to terrestrial radio in Mississippi. I say terrestrial radio in Mississippi. I still listen to radio. I still listen to XM in the car. But that's, a, that's to your moving target point. Remember, 10 years, radio is dead. Radio is not going to be a thing in 2021. Like, remember, like, that, that was the thing. Years yeah. ago. And now we have Spotify being like, wait till you see what we have. We have live radio. <laughs> it's a circular deal, and it's a moving yeah. target, and you're right. And I didn't think we'd get into all this, but but screw it, I'm fired up. What killed me about like all that is like, there's still these old traditional media snobs that's dump on these alternative platforms. Like whether it's you building a YouTube or me trying to do this newsletter thing or the Substack and all that. And then you have guys like Dan Wilkins, like, well, I work for one of the most respectful and respected newspapers in the country. It's like, dude, you're a Gannett columnist. That place has been getting towards bankruptcy for a decade like the new york times i think you see it more in politics than in sports because in sports they still the media outlets still kind of hire a lot of really talented writers and blah 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 but like the new york times is not the new york times of 20 years ago the usa today is not the usa today of 20 years ago the way this industry is shifting and yes it's a moving target in terms of what works and what doesn't is build your own audience if you have you know Three out of five fingers of talent, someone's going to follow you. It just remembers how big, like, it just matters how big you are. And build that up and be patient. It's kind of basically what I've gathered uh, out of it and just see where it goes. But this whole like age, I think it, it's coming to an end, this whole age of dumping on the guy with a, with a TikTok or YouTube channel or like you said, John Boy Twitter and all that is over because they're more successful than these. Yeah these traditional media outlets that are bleeding money. Like, I got just think that's the way it's going. And I mean, what is Barstool at its core? Exactly. It's, it's people you want to listen to for an hour and a half or someone you want to read blogs for an hour and a half. Blo bloggers and podcasters. That's all they are. Yes. 
And what comes with that is a built-in audience, right? You see a guy like Ben Mintz, who I'm not saying is not talented. He's a great dude. Seems very funny. But goes immediately and gains a gigantic following because of what Barstool's built up collectively. But it's yep. being built from individual personalities. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people don't like Barstool and, and Dave Portnoy and stuff, and I understand why. But if you cannot appreciate that, I mean, how many media companies hired people during the pandemic? Yeah, they're thriving in an industry that's largely failing. And I, thriving may be putting it as an understatement. They're exploding. It's, it's unbelievable. And they, they've done – they were not – Dave Portnoy, for all of the stuff that people hate him for, he wasn't too good to print magazines in his garage and hand them out to people on the street. He wasn't too good for that. And now look at him. I mean, there are people, and I know those people, like you said, that look down on stuff like that. But John Boy's a great example. Barstool, if you're – if you're not doing stuff like this, you will get left behind. Newspapers used to look down on bloggers. I mean, there are coaches that still uh, – politicians in this state that will not acknowledge websites because that's all they are is a website. Yeah, and if, like, subscriptions were public, I saw that. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember if it was Reeves or someone else, but they are like, y'all aren't a real media outlet. It's like, buddy, have you seen Claire and Ledger's subscriber base? I doubt you have. No one has. But it, 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 I guarantee you it's smaller it's than the not good. you're dumping on. And, like, the last thing I'll say before, before we get out of here is, like, it, like ha- particularly being multidimensional, one of the greatest things I appreciated about being at Super Talk is, like, Richard pitched me on this job. I had zero interest in radio. I, I hadn't even ever done student radio when he like pitched me the job or whatever. I had literally never been put in front of a microphone instead of a couple, with the exception of a couple cringeworthy student TV segments in which I just sat there in like a golf shirt and a hat because they needed someone. But like being multidimensional and being able to talk about, even if you're just doing audio, but being able to do it on YouTube or radio, because they are different styles and talk about different things, I think is key. And on the very small chance Richard Cross is listening to this, I don't know how his head could get any bigger, but I'll give the guy credit. <laughs> if, you know, someone who had zero experience doing it, if I wasn't able to sit next to a Richard Cross every day or have someone like you in my ear, I would have been screwed. I mean, outside of one FCC violation, we made it through that ship okay. Like, <laughs> hey, that, that never got reported, so don't worry about it. <laughs> But I literally, the first, the first two months I worked there, I couldn't adjust my microphone. We'd start talking, and you'd get in our ear and go, turn him up. And Richard would have to put the microphone closer to my face while he's turning the volume up on the dial because I didn't know how to do anything. And I always, I guess I didn't appreciate it as much in the moment. And, again, I hate stroking Dick Cross's ego. But yeah, if I hadn't I been able too. to sit next to him for a couple, you know, a year and a half and kind of learn how he does it and when to talk, and when not to talk and what to get mad at and what not to get mad at, I would have been significantly worse at the job and probably not done as well. And I'll throw Richard one more bone. I have watched a lot of Ole Miss baseball this year. Um, Him and the Kessinger guy that used to do it with DK are dynamite, and that's no knock on anyone else. But Kessinger is a really good radio guy. Richard's really good at TV. That's one last thing I've noticed is the other crews they have in, it's, it's night and day. It is. And he's a real professional, and he'll get his break eventually, and, and that'll just that'll make me mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's it. Speaking of adapting, too, talking about radio and learning on the fly, I think there are a lot of people in the radio business in local markets. I think 
that's the next thing that's going to fail. Not the concept of radio and talk radio and live audio or video things like YouTube and Twitch and stuff like that. Um, the shock jock, I think, is going away. I, I think that that has a, a, a limit. And so people in the industry, and I've tried to get better at it, will tell you, have an opinion, make it strong, and come strong and passionately or else you're going to fail. But then there's a line that a lot of people cross where it's they manufacture outrage or anger over something just to make people mad. I mean, there's a station that I uh, tried to work at in my hometown, and they said no to me and, and hired some blowhard instead, uh, where they said their stated goal every day so in Greenville, South Carolina, it's not a college town. It's much like Jackson. Um, it's kind of the centerpiece of an area that has two fan bases. And they said the goal every day should be to just stir shit up, is what they said. Get the two fan bases against each other. Get somebody mad at you. Like, that's their stated goal. Make people mad at each other or at you. Just make people mad. And in the short term... Their ratings numbers are pretty good there. They were kind of neck and neck with another station there, and they're starting to beat them because they have this shock jock stuff going on. But I think that's got a shelf life, and it's starting to become more and more apparent. Just like when newspapers 15 years ago, people were like, they're not adapting. That's not going to work. I think that's going to happen here in radio too, where if you're trying to be Max Kellerman or Stephen A. Smith, or random guy that's yelling every day trying to get people mad, just like that station in my hometown that I tried to work at and they said no to me, I think that has a shelf life because of what podcasting has done where it's more personable, informative, people start to trust you more. That's the next thing to go in this industry, I think, is the shock jock, I think, is going away. People don't like it as much. There's better platforms. If you're a South Carolina fan, why would you listen to a guy that says South Carolina should get out of the SEC because they're not competitive anymore? Like, why would you ever want to listen to that guy who's just saying things to make you mad when you could hear people that are like you talking about the team that you like in a different way? I, I think that's the next thing to go for whatever that's worth, talking about adaptability. Couldn't agree more. And, like, it, right, you talk about people, sports dudes love, like, making uh, analogies to the housing bubble and shit on that that crashed in 2008. I mean, you, you, you get a guy in their 40s, and they, if they haven't made a, a housing bubble reference on, on a radio show that they have, then it, they're just not doing it right. But it is kind of the case with all this. It's like Skip Bayless keeps signing these huge contracts, but who watches that? Who wakes up every morning and was like, I cannot wait to see what Kellerman and Stephen A. Smith have to say. They're basically paying them all this money to do this show that doesn't rate very well, but so they can get six social media clips is essentially what they're doing. And there just has to be some sort of shelf life with that. I agree. I don't think people actually have any appetite for that. But these larger media companies, ESPN, Fox, whatever, have such a strong grip on like the viewing public television-wise that it doesn't matter, and I think they've tricked themselves into thinking that that works. Because, again, what person do you know? You hang out with dudes that are sports fans. My friends are sports fans. Who the hell is watching that? No one. It's just Four their lasting power. that are getting their hair cut. Totally going away. And radio is the same. Yeah. And 
man, I think, and like I said before, ESPN is failing. Their, their radio lineup is, they're constantly changing it, and Fox is just destroying them on the radio side. But like you said, the content side, who's watching stuff like that? So they have, and I would guess the majority of the audience listening to this, not big fans of the NBA. Trust me, anytime I even mention the league, I get told that nobody cares. That always sucked. We should have had our own NBA show. I know, right? Um, but what ESPN is doing, I think they – and they have so much money invested in broadcasting the league, and they do it to baseball too, and they make people not want to watch. So when you, you talk about television ratings and stuff like that and interest in these sports – ESPN, the worldwide leader, the supposed king of sports media, will get Stephen A. Smith to stand in front of a camera and tell Damian Lillard why he should force his way out of Portland to go play for the Knicks. And you're doing two things there. You are telling everybody that is not New York, your team doesn't matter. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're telling the Pacific Northwest, who loves the Trailblazers, don't watch our show because you're only good – for sending your thing good in two decades. And they're killing themselves in the process. You're already getting it with Zion. You'll get it with John Morant, who apparently uh, went down with an injury tonight. Uh, hope he's okay, but they need to move to a bigger market. They, they need to go to New York. Well, why? Why? It, does, does Memphis not matter? Why do they need to go play in New York? Because the Knicks have been awful forever. The Grizzlies have been more consistent, made more playoff games, won more playoff games than the Knicks have Knicks had in the last 15 years. So why should John Morant force his way out of Memphis to go play for the Knicks? To go play, join up with Steph Curry in, in Golden State. And so when everybody pushes this narrative, you're telling the rest of the country that is not in California or New York City, don't matter. You don't matter. They're failing, man. I remember being 12 years old, watching ESPN every night, I knew who every player was. It, it felt like every team mattered, no matter where that – I mean, Eric, I remember Eric Burns for the Oakland A's. Does anybody give a crap in Oakland about the Oakland A's? No, but I knew who Eric Burns was because he was on a team that mattered because they were a Major League Baseball team. And only the NFL gets that kind of coverage anymore. And they wonder why nobody watches their shows anymore. Their podcast downloads, even though they have double the shows of Barstool, get million fewer, millions of fewer listeners a month than Barstool, why their, their daily show ratings are bad, why NBA and, and Major League Baseball ratings are going down. It's not just because of woke culture or whatever. It's because the way you cover it has changed and it's gotten worse and people are tuning you out. And they're so intoxicated by the TV money. Like, you're right when you're talking about they're failing. But the problem is, is like, and I agree with you, but we're never going to be proven right because networks like that have so much money that they can just kind of keep doing what they're doing. And if they do end up bleeding out, it will be a very slow bleed. But, like, to your point, why does ESPN not have a podcast network? Why is there not one place you can go get all kinds of different podcasts from ESPN? That makes no sense. Like, the, the, a company a third of your size, and I'm just saying a third, it could be even smaller, Barstool is kicking your ass in the audio space. And honestly, I don't know the numbers because they would never release them. I would argue the written space, and all Barstool does is kind of post one crap and two funny stuff. 
that's probably a little bit better than that. And so like you're investing all this money. They're basically just living off the TV rights. They make money off the NBA. They make money off the NFL and they're paying all these guys, these salaries to have these ridiculous takes and on these blowhard shows. And we're right, but I'm just not sure we'll ever actually be proven right because it won't matter. But to your point in the mid-sized markets, and I know there's not mid-sized TV shows anymore, which might underscore a point, but the mid-sized radio guys that's just trying to go with the hot take that clearly doesn't watch anything, his days are over. You have to be interesting to draw ratings unless you work at the mothership is basically what it is. Yeah, and those people, I mean, the shock jock stuff works for a short amount of time. And then if you don't have an audience that trusts you or cares about you, then they're going to end up tuning you out eventually, and it won't work anymore. Couldn't agree more. I got to get you out of here. We've done this for almost two hours. You have a son. I have nothing to do. I'm going to oh, drink some more beer and watch Sports Center. But you have a you have a child to take care of that you told me was like thirty pounds now. Kids getting working big. on it, getting close. How the ninetieth percentile in weight for his age. So <laughs> there we go. They start yeah. starting for the NBA. Maybe start shooting him up with stuff. I don't know. I'm just saying. I would. Uh, I would. <laughs> But I, I appreciate it, dude. This was a blast. I, I can't thank you enough. Go check him out. Michael Borky on YouTube at Michael Borky on Twitter. We got to do this again sometime soon, man. Anytime. You tell me when and I'm here. Take it easy, man. Good talking to you. See you soon, buddy.